Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode continues our coverage of The Furies by Roger Zelazny, originally published in 1965. You know, this is a novella, and as is tradition, we're doing two episodes. This is the second of two. If you've read the story and want to skip ahead to the discussion, well, I don't recommend it, but you're welcome to do that. And this is that episode. This is the discussion. We did cover a lot in our recap. You know, a lot of our conversation in the recap was about the, the world building, uh, about some of the character archetypes that Zelazny is, is using here. I mean, in particular, right, this crazy ending with the Furies, uh, but then also some of the, the writing choices that he made, as well as also like the ethics uh, that are at the heart of this story. So a lot to, lot to talk about here. So Brandon, where do you want to where do you want to start this conversation? Well, I think we're going to take an unusual route, as is typically the case when I'm in charge of the discussion, uh, to talk about both, you know, the world building, the craft and, and the ethics of the story. And as I mentioned at the end of our last episode, I think the most interesting way into the story for me, is through that ethical lens. And I think this approach will give us an in to discussing world building and characterization and all that jazz that we've just mentioned. You know, so much is so well done in this story, even though we maybe were a little hard on it. I I, I didn't quite feel like we were very hard on it, but we kind of poked and prodded at the story, maybe in uncomfortable ways uh, that we we do want to talk about craft as well. I, I want to say at the top of this episode that I'm becoming a huge fan of Zelazny and reading this story made me wish that I had read more of his stuff in our pre-podcast days. Uh, You know, 10 Princess of Amber, that omnibus has long been on my to-read list and I don't even own a copy. Every used bookstore I go into, I look for a copy, I find one or two and then I leave without buying it. But, you know, after reading this story and the other two Zelazny stories that we've covered on this network, I just don't see how I'm going to walk into a bookstore and not walk out with that uh, omnibus edition of, of the 10 Princess of Amber anymore. Right. It's ubiquitous. I think actually there's some kind of magic spell that happens that uh, that like they're just every used bookstore has to have a certain number of <laughs> copies of that book there. And if you don't, they'll actually just like magically appear there or some other book will transform into into the the, the Amber <laughs> Omnibus or something like that. But yeah, I'm going to be doing the the first of them, Nine Princes in Amber over on, on ATOS as well. So that would be a good time to read that. <laughs> you can talk with me about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. I mean, my uh, the stack is just getting really un, unruly at this point. But, you know, I'm going to have to get it's Nine Princes of Amber. Thanks for that correction. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that uh, omnibus because I just I have to I, I'm really loving Zelazny. There's so much that he does well, but this story is just thorny in some ways. And I, I think we have to start by assessing how successful Zelazny was in realizing what he set out to do in writing this story. So I'm going to read uh, a bit from Zelazny's words on this story that we have in this uh, edition. It's volume two of the collected stories of Roger Zelazny called Power and Light. So here's what Zelazny says. It's kind of an end note to the story. This was an early story from the period when I was still trying to teach myself about character development. It involves a continuing fascination with the better qualities of bad characters and the worst qualities of good ones, to put it as simply as I can. He also mentions that this 
story was kind of written as an ode or homage to the comics that he was enjoying at the time uh, when he wrote it, though we don't know what those comics were. So based on this, we can say, and I think it's also pretty obvious, that Zelazny wants to show us villains with sympathetic traits and heroes with negative traits. Let's just start by looking at some examples of what these are in the story and and whether or not you feel Zelazny pulled it off. So, Glenn, did, did you see exam, you know, any examples of Corgo having sympathetic traits or, or the negative traits of the heroes here? Right. Let's let's start with Corgo. I, I think it's hard to not see Corgo as heroic, right? This story, if he were the protagonist, he just would be a hero. There's nothing villainous about refusing to carry out an order to commit genocide. Right. That's not a villainous act. Right. If Where there is villainy here. Right. Is in when Emil says, well, OK, so but now you've become a terrorist. Right. And Corgo tries to justify his actions by saying, right, I'm, I'm fighting against a regime that commits genocide. I'm trying to overthrow that regime. Right. And if this were if Corgo were a like a, a colonel or, or something like that in Nazi Germany that, you know, we we're telling a World War II story, we would be rooting for him right under those circumstances for sure. But where this gets complicated, where Zelazny puts some some gray here, right, cast a shadow over this is to have Emil point out that, yeah, but you're not actually attacking the government. You're, you're killing civilians. You're trying to shut down the economy or something like that, and you're murdering civilians. You're not actually waging a kind of resistance war against a cruel regime. You're just killing civilians, right? But that's really where his villainy lies, because the his motivations, right, his initial the, his origin story is definitely something that we can get behind and see as a heroic moment, this refusal to carry out the orders to commit genocide. Yeah, there's a lot. We're going to talk more about Corgo in a little bit, but Corgo's motivations, uh, the things that lead him to vengeance are by and large love, really. He's in love with Mala, this drilling, uh, non-humanoid, intelligent, quadruped, dog-like creature. Uh, but that's also something that the Empire can use to cast Corgo in a really negative light. But if we're just assessing the motivations of the character, you're absolutely right in saying that Corgo is heroic and also right in saying that the problem with Corgo is that he's taking vengeance on humans. He's not going after the institutions. He's not blowing up government buildings. Listen, none of this is an endorsement for terrorist behavior, but if you're waging a war against an evil empire, well, one way to do it is to go after infrastructure, but also in a, in a system that's as bureaucratic as this one, it's hard to know who to go after to kind of cut the head off the dragon, so to speak. So he goes after the economy instead. And I guess that is what makes him him villainous, though. As I said, it, the way this story works, it seems to me like the insurance companies are really the only ones who are paying for Corgo's crimes. Yeah, I think I think we should really maybe just translate this into Star Wars language, right? I mean, this is a space opera story, so let's let's put this in terms of like the most successful space opera story of all time, Star Wars, right? As you and as you said, Brandon, we're not endorsing terrorism here. Let's be real clear about that. But something that I think 
troubles, uh, certainly, you know, people of, of our age who grew up with the original George Lucas st- three Star Wars movies, that Star Wars trilogy is you watch as a kid. And of course, obviously you're on the side of the rebels and then you grow up and you kind of realize that actually they're terrorists. But the only thing that makes them palatable at that point, right, the Rebel Alliance, is that they aren't killing civilians, right? And in fact, we actually have to have Darth Vader blow up a planet full of civilians in order to, for us to really understand that they're the bad guys. That's got to happen right away, right? But that's all really simplistic, right? And of course, that's the, the world of the original Star Wars trilogy has a real moral simplicity to it. Good and evil are very clear, and that's it. Zelazny's trying to ground this a little more realistically, right? So there's just, there's no Death Star to blow up here. And so Corgo is faced with this real conundrum of how, how do I prevent more genocides? How do I, how do I go about doing that? And I think this is where Zelazny has, has really failed in his task of explaining what Corgo is up to, because I think that we are really supposed to infer that by destroying all of these mining vessels, that he really is trying to interrupt the ability for people to have space flight so that the civilization won't be able to go to new planets and kill the sentient inhabitants there. But none of that is really spelled out. No, it's not. And and kind of the, some of the blame is placed on the drillin who are like, well, we don't want to go to a reserve planet, so we'll just all die. And it's just it's a very strange choice uh, to place the blame, though it's not explicitly placed, but to place some of the responsibility of the genocide on the people who were being genocided as if it's not a total violation of like states rights or something like that. Um, you know, that these people are not a part of the Alliance of planets or the Federation or whatever. And that the humans are inherently the dominant species, which is another real problem of this story as well is the has not quite given us a convincing reason to be on the side of humans as a dominant species who have some sort of right, uh, some sort of manifest destiny, so to speak, to go and displace these other people just to expand their own dwelling places. It's not explained well enough to give us any sort of rooting sympathy for either side of this conflict. Well, I don't think we're at all ha- supposed to have sympathy for the humans in this story, like the human government in this story, right? I mean, I'm, I'm glad you invoked manifest destiny here because really 19th century America is the parallel here, right? I mean, the term reservation is used, right? So we're what Zelazny's doing here is drawing on the historical parallel of forcibly removing Native Americans from their land and forcing them to go live on reservations. And then if they refuse to do that, exterminating them uh, or, or trying to use force to continue to compel them to move to the reservation, th- those sorts of choices. That's what Zelazny is looking at here. That's that's what he's drawing on here. And so I don't think we're supposed to at all feel sympathetic towards the interstellar government here, this, this human civilization that is very clearly using violence to expand. I mean, that's what we're told about Corgo's career in the first place is he, he, he fights Pirates, which I think just means people operating, humans operating outside the strictures of this government. And then also ugly aliens, right? Just meaning non-humans, because I don't think that there are non-ugly aliens here. I think this is really meant to be a pretty jingoistic 
expanding state here that we're really supposed to understand is, is really the, the bad guys here. And so, uh, you know, I don't really need any more information than Zelazny does give us here for me to sympathize with the Drillin or any other alien species here who's, you know, this target for removal or or genocide, right? I mean, just what this human government is doing is immoral. And it seems like they're doing it all over the place. Right. So that is our sympathy with Corgo. That is the positive trait of Corgo, right? It's it's easy for us to see the evil of the giant systematic bureaucracy that is destroying the universe for its own gain for the expansion of humanity and so on. Yet the heroes in this story are aligned with them. And would you say that that is the core negative trait of these Furies, the heroes, or do you think they have other more individual negative traits as heroes? Yeah, this is an interesting question because just offhand, uh, the only one of these characters who I don't like, like who I wouldn't want to hang out with is Benedict Benedict. Sandor Sandor, like I, I don't see anything villainous in his character i guess links links has been a professional assassin but he's also a, a pious person he's also a family man so maybe he's he's more complex uh, than i was giving him credit for sort of when i began when i began <laughs> this paragraph here right but benedict benedict is the only one of them who really to me comes off as being villainous but i also think that we we fairly well established in the the recap episode that i was reading him as more villainous i think than you are to me he was this i i, I guess i I could not get past the use of the word rape when Zelazny is describing what he does to people when he gets into their minds, right? So for me, my reading of the story always saw Benedict Benedict as essentially a rapist who we were supposed to be rooting for in in some way. But and and that I was just never going to do. I was never going to root for him. But Sandor Sandor and Lynx Lynx seem like all right guys. Yeah, I agree with you here. I did Benedict Benedict is the unfortunate central figure of this story. And he's just he's awful. I mean, he's just awful. But Let's look at the heroes as as Furies now. Uh, first thing I want to do here is ask about your understanding of the Furies, because I don't know that much about them. And I have a first kind of a historical context question, which is to ask you if your sense of the Furies or the existence of these, you know, avenging angels, so to speak, or the stories about them in ancient Greece, do, does this presuppose just society on some level, or at least that the Furies are agents of justice as an abstract concept, specifically of like retributive justice? This is a really good question. It's very complicated. The, the Furies are are really interesting figures in ancient Greek literature. You know, we often just talk about like ancient Greek mythology, which I think is, that's fine. That's a fine publishing thing to say. You can put that on your book if you want or title your class that that way. I've taught that type of class, but <laughs> really what we mean is religion and we mean literature. And these, the Furies actually, I think, feature more prominently in literature than we actually get in like religious language. They show up in in Hesiod when he's explaining as a you know poet who's explaining like the the, the genealogy of all of the the gods, for example. But really where we see them the most is in Athenian tragedy. We see them in Aeschylus. We see them in Euripides. We see them in Sophocles as well, where they aren't acting like prosecutors. They're not really acting like some kind of 
complex, uh, sophisticated criminal justice system. They're kind of blind vengeance, right? They are enforcers of the letter of the law at the expense of the spirit of the law quite frequently. And so they themselves don't necessarily have any sense of morality. They themselves are simply this kind of neutral force in the world that certainly, perhaps most frequently, will get bad guys, will take care of bad guys, will give bad guys what they deserve, but sometimes also will do this for good guys as well, simply because they have violated the letter of the law, even in service of the spirit of the law or something like that. And so when Zelazny is invoking the Furies here at the end of the, the story, and then of course also eventually the story does come to be titled The Furies, to my mind, what he is pointing out is the fact that our heroes are not necessarily doing good. They're, they're not angels. These are not the angels of justice. These are actually more like a force of nature than, than some kind of moral agent in the world. I think that explanation really helps us to understand just what Zelazny is going for here, because the three heroes of this story are acting on behalf of what really feels like, and I think we've emphasized quite a lot, is an evil empire. And I, I don't see the abstract value of justice being put on display here at all in this story. It's more like mercenaries who are on the side of some unbeatable institution. And so like the metting out of justice by the heroes in this story doesn't gel really with the sense of the overworld that the story takes place in for me at all. It's more like if these guys are heroes, they're in the business of being heroes in kind of an ugly way. Yeah. I mean, these are just guys doing a job. It's not even clear to us that they have all the information we have. In fact, they almost certainly do not have all the information that we have. And I think that really describes the Furies as well. They're just these kind of functionaries, right? They are simply following like their programming and they don't, for them, there's there's no sense of should. There just is follow the rules. Just do the thing that you're programmed to do. And that's what we see these guys doing as well, right? These are guys who are brought in by their own government and told they have to go on a very important mission and they do it. Right. And then when they're put up against Corgo, his crimes, as they're related to us in the story, are like they're moral, they're civic, and they're murderous. I mean, he's taking life. So we see Corgo, who is married to a non-human, which, you know, that might go along with his need for a visit from the Furies. It's a it's a moral crime. He's he's also an oath breaker. He's broken the code that he lives by. He's killing people, you know, Mala, his non-human wife that, you know, they almost certainly have this dog. This dog is almost certainly their child. You know, she wants, she's continuing to urge Corgo to go on this crusade. Emil doesn't die at the end, I don't think. But do you think Mala and the and the puppy are collateral damage or do they also deserve this kind of visit from the Furies as as they are visited at the end of the story? Right. So let me be clear that I, I don't endorse the, the, the murder of any of these people, the killing of any of these people. Right. To me, this is this is murder that uh, our heroes are are carrying out here. I, I, at the same time, I don't endorse Corgo's own murder of civilians here. And I do think that he should be brought into the criminal justice system 
tried, right? And, and, and given a fair trial, right? In accordance with like our own system, right? How we would, how we would do this here. Just sending, you know, the goon squad out to assassinate him is not, uh, not what I would want our government to be doing on our behalf, right? In a, a similar situation for sure. But I think to get to the heart of your question here, which is, is there a sort of difference in the, the culpability here between Corgo and Mala, uh, and and you know even if we assume that Corgo deserves this type of punishment, the question of does Mala deserve this type of punishment, where I think that where someone might point out their differences are that Corgo is a traitor and Mala is not right. Corgo has turned on his his own his own species, his own government. He attacked members of his own military in defending this planet, right? So he is a traitor, whereas Mala is merely someone who is working to, is fighting to defend her own home. Uh, and then, of course, obviously also to, to, to seek for vengeance, but they're seeking that vengeance out of different places and, and violating different, different rules uh, in, in their pursuit of it. I mean, it certainly feels to me then kind of based on what you were saying that Mala feels a little bit like collateral damage. I mean, this is the capping off of a genocide that our heroes are participating in. This is the final person of this species. And they didn't just kill this person. They killed the, this person's child as well. And it's just really dark uh, approach to this, this storytelling here, to this story where Corgo and those in his wake simply cannot escape retribution, even though it feels as though Corgo was reformed or restored in some way to some normalized role in society, thanks to Emil. So we're kind of looking at the balance of retributive justice, which is you just get retribution and that is the end of the story. Like that is the cap there. Like when retribution is achieved, justice is achieved, and there's no more need to do anything further. But there's another theory of justice, which is to restore a person to society, to standing in society, even if it's on the outskirts, like piracy is normalized and accepted. Like it's not clear to me that pirates are just getting killed for their behavior. Like if they get caught, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they get blown up, but maybe they get a trial or something like that. That Corrigo being restored to some role in humanity should also be the end of this story of justice. And as I said in our recap episode, the real tragedy of this story is that retribution wins out over restoration. And I don't know if you had first if you had that sense of the story as well and whether Zelazny was endorsing that or not. I don't think he is. But that just leads to the question of whether Zelazny has really pulled off this experiment of giving us a sympathetic villain and villainous heroes. I think where this becomes really muddied, right? What 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 exactly it is that Zelazny's trying to accomplish here is that there is a character in this story that we've not really called attention to yet, and that is simply this thing that we're calling the evil empire, this interstellar government. I mean, we've been talking about it, but we haven't really thought about it as a character. And it is. And it is the bad guy in this story, right? So all of the humans in this story, they all live in this state. They all live in this society that is itself inherently bad. And so these people are all shaped by existing in this society. All four of these guys work for this government at, at one point or another and are shaped by that. And so then are just operating within this world that is not like a, a, itself a neutral world, right? It is, it is a bad world. And so 
this is not really the stage or, or the background against which you want to explore the nuances of characters being good or evil when the world they're inhabiting is itself tinged with evil. And so I think, you know, if we're going to say that Zelazny didn't really pull off this character study, and I think that is that's certainly how I'm feeling, and I think that's how you're feeling as well, Brandon. And so I think that's really where the flaw is. I think that's where he went wrong here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I really do think that he way overemphasized the heroism of Victor Corgo and way underemphasized the villainy of the heroes that are actually just in league with something that is explicitly evil. That's the background character of this story, as you said. And that that to me feels like a politically confusing decision <laughs> in writing this story, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, just to put it back into Star Wars uh, again, right? Like, imagine if Star Wars were uh, told not just from the perspective of Luke Skywalker. I mean, I'm thinking here of, you know, A New Hope, right? Uh, original Star Wars movie told not just from the perspective of Luke Skywalker, but also of like three stormtroopers who are looking for, you know, R2-D2 because he's got the plans, right? And like, we're learning about them as characters and, you know, also, look, Luke uh, is not uh, totally sympathetic. He's kind of whiny and he's real mean to his uncle, right? So like, you know, maybe we don't love Luke Skywalker, he's just, you know, unequivocally there. And so we can get these like, you know, imaginary stormtroopers who are looking for him as well. We can see them as people and get to know them and like them as characters. But at the end of the day, right, we also realize that they work for the institution that just blew up a whole freaking planet that killed millions and millions of people. And so even though we might sympathize with them as individuals, we can't support the actions that they're taking, right? So it just wouldn't work in that way. And that's really what Zelazny's trying to pull off here. I don't think it's possible to make that work. Well, let's look now at what Frederick Pohl said when he rejected this story for Galaxy Magazine, uh, though it might not have to do with quite what we're talking about, but it might shed some light on some other elements of this story that are worth talking about. Again, I want to emphasize here that I, I actually really like this story a lot. Right, it's, right, just, right, me too. it's just so confusing politically. Like, like as we've been saying, like this is a really hard thing to untangle uh, because on some level, it's an experiment of Zelazny's to grow as a writer. Uh, and look, I'm all for that. And like, if, if I were 15, I'd love this story. And the next thing we're going to do is imagine we're 15 and have discovered this on the comic <laughs> rack and imagine what we'd like to see in it. But let's, let's just finish up this, this section that, that, and we can go into craft a little bit here, but this is what Frederick Pohl wrote. He said, as a general rule, for instance, it seems to me that a science fiction story needs more lucidity more clarity, more directness of exposition than, say, in a, quote, mainstream story. Because in a mainstream story, it's possible for the reader to judge what is an exercise in literary form and what is taken to be representational. In SF and fantasy, the reader doesn't always have that advantage. Since the subject matter can be pretty far out, a far out style is multiply confusing. When this general rule of mine isn't followed, the story becomes difficult to follow and maybe not worth the trouble. And I have the feeling that something like that happened here. So this is kind of a kind rejection letter. It's actually at least an engagement with the story. But how? what do you make of Pohl's sense that, you know, something of the sort of the rules being followed of exposition 
uh, and the resulting confusion, perhaps, that he felt as an editor is what happened to this story. Yeah, I really like this rejection letter. I mean, Zelazny has been publishing a lot of stories in Galaxy at this point, right? So he and Frederick Pohl are not uh, strangers. They've actually probably met in person at a con even by this point. I mean, we're, you know, we're in volume two of this collection of of Zelazny's uh, complete short stories here. So I like the, you know, sense there that we get of their relationship. But I, I do also think that this is a totally fair criticism of this story. Zelazny is playing around with a literary style here and is not doing the type of a really straight-faced and direct exposition, direct explanation of what this world is, what it's like, what the rules are, what people are up to. He's not doing that as clearly as, like Isaac Asimov would do, right? He is playing with some style here. And you and I spent a lot of time in the recap episode trying to tease out what's going on with, you know, the space mining stuff and what Corgo is actually even up to by targeting these uh, space mining ships as objects of his terrorism here. We had to suss that out. And Frederick Pohl is not in that business. Frederick Pohl is in the business of, of amusing people while they're on the train to work. And so for him, that's he's looking for directness. He's looking for what we would call you know accessibility here. And if people are having to do too much work, right, presumably before they've gotten their cup of coffee when they've gotten to work, <laughs> right, to labor through this, then they're not going to buy the next issue of the magazine when they see it on the stand. If they didn't enjoy reading this one, if they if it was felt like work for them, even though you know, I think you and I like stories that are this type of work. I actually really quite liked the world building in this story. I do think it's a fair criticism uh, from that publishing perspective. Yeah. And I, and I don't also think it's just from the publishing perspective, though all the objections you phrase are really good. Like, hey, we want people to buy more magazines. I mean, writing is a business <laughs> after all. But I, I think that what you and I have also been talking about with regards to this, you know, these ethical or political problems of the story is really the result of of a failure of exposition of clear and lucid exposition of who do these characters root for and why and i think we've i don't know we've probably done a pretty good job and i don't think we should belabor it further of pointing out why that is so confusing in this story and i'm really glad you've used uh the star wars as the gold standard here because <laughs> yeah you do need to blow up a uh, a planet to ensure that the audience knows the institution is bad you can't just expect the audience to believe institutions are bad because they're institutions and there's all sorts of people working for them that don't know everything that's going on uh it's just it's just not clear enough to to grip onto, I think, as a casual reader, but even as our audience has listened to, even as a, a kind of a close reader of this, it still presents some challenges uh, in terms of untangling and and thinking about thinking about it more. Only I think causes more confusion. Like we know the good guys are heroes because they're hero tropes. They've got superpowers. Maybe Corgo is evil. Because he's his powers come from some sort of transhuman element. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So let's just talk about this as a, an homage to comics. I really want to look at this story through the lens of a superhero comic. And maybe if we can put on the hats that turn us into 15-year-olds <laughs> who are looking for new <laughs> comics in the shop. Um, and think about you know the way that Zelazny constructs this particular universe to provide us with superheroes and supervillains. Uh, I mean, it, this is explicitly an aim as well as the kind of 
thinking about negative qualities of heroes and positive attributes of villains. It's an aim of the story that he he mentions in the end notes of, of Power and Light here. So first question I'd like to ask you is a basic one. Would you pick up a comic book called The Furies, starring Sandor Sandor, Benedict Benedict, and Lynx Lynx, with Corgo as the villain. And here's the cover art. I'm going to pitch you the cover art of this issue number <laughs> one, Glenn. Uh, it's Sandor Sandor in a wheelchair or something. Lynx Lynx hunched over a table and Benedict Benedict. You know, they're all at this table. He's weeping over a glowing heart. Uh, I'm going to have it glow in this case for the cover. And then, you know, from the mind's eye of Benedict and, and maybe a uh, a thought bubble or something, we see Corgo next to a dog-like creature looking out on the vastness of space or something like that. It's the Furies, issue number one. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to pick this up. Let me let me be clear. <laughs> first of all, right, we've got the the first two volumes of this this collection uh, of Zelazny's stories here from the New England Science Fiction Association. And we've got these volumes because we were commissioned to do three stories here. And well, now that we've got them, I just wanted to start including more Zelazny in the rotation. And I picked this story out. This is actually one of the last stories that we're doing that's not nominated by somebody. Well, I basically will never pick a story for us to do again, <laughs> uh, which is great. It's uh, it takes a lot big burden off of, off of me there. But look, I just was looking through the table of contents, saw that there was a story called The Furies and said, yes, that is for me. Had no idea what it was going to be about. This is not at all what I was expecting. I was not expecting space opera. I was thinking that there was going to be some kind of horror you know, element to this, this story when I threw it on here, uh, though I'm really glad that we've read this story. So yeah, just number one, anything called The Furies, I'm going to I'm gonna be into that. But right, I like the visual that you're, you're painting here as well, right? Showing us who the characters are, you giving us a sense of the, the speculativeness of this world, right? I mean, I'm not sure that we've actually made a big enough deal out of Benedict Benedict's like paranormal uh, ability here. To see, you can grab someone's uh, dead heart and, and see where they are in the galaxy, right? That's a pretty big deal. That's pretty cool. But yeah, the idea that we would actually, in a really drawn out way, follow these three hitmen essentially on their quest to find the villain of this story and then also get some of that story maybe half of that story told actually from that guy's perspective as well as a kind of uh, chase story a kind of cat and mouse story i would be super into an extended version of this i mean I, even in the recap right i said that this probably should have been an entire novel i think you're right here Brandon, to be like just insinuating that what this actually should be is an ongoing comic book series yeah, I mean, just the idea of it as a comic series really reminds me a lot of Saga, which does a lot of the similar things that uh, Zelazny is doing in in this story. Um, so I don't know. Saga came to my mind as like a, a great kind of example of the type of work that Zelazny is doing in in this story as a modern example. I think the parallels are super clear there, right? That's exactly what I would have in mind as well. And and one of the things that makes Saga, uh, which is by Brian K. Vaughn, by the way, it's a really great, great book, though. I never, never actually completed the series, but really, oh, really neither, phenomenal. Neither have I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, uh, it went on for a while, but it, I mean, it's really is great. In fact, I would love to complete that someday. I would love to cover that on ATOS if, uh, if that's something I can manage at some point. But anyway, the point here is that one of the things that makes Saga so great is that we are following our characters who are exactly this they are on the run from uh from a government that were two governments actually right that we we see as being hostile there's a sort of romeo and juliet 
element to this story as well, but that we're following our refugees uh, as, on their flight, on their, their attempt to escape. But they kind of planet hop as well, right? So we get to see the world, right? A lot of the story is about building up the, the world, seeing what planets they're on, getting backstories about characters and their indigenous worlds and so on. And you could absolutely do that here. Zelazny has in the space of this just this novella invented a really 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 big speculative fiction setting the space opera setting that could really be fleshed out to tell an ongoing story for a really long time it really functions as a template for an ongoing series and if we think of the furies issue number 1 or the first run of the series as the victor corgo story let's consider like let's look at some templative elements of this story and then like think about where it would go so i'm going to throw out what i think is the template and then we'll, we'll speculate a little bit here uh, because i just think this would be so cool as a comic series so <laughs> Let's say the heroes of this story are, are the Furies. They all have some like naturally evolved special ability that takes a toll on them physically in some way. They're the the paranorms, basically. So Benedict Benedict is, is lacrimose. Sandor can't go outside. Lynx has these weird religious beliefs that let him kill out of a function of love, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but Victor is not. But he does have a special ability. He has these special regenerative powers, I guess you'd call them that are the result of this transhumanist sort of element in his body, this mechanical heart. So one thing I would say that represents Corgo's evil in this story is that his abilities are ill gotten. His gains are come from the quote unquote, like wrong method of getting abilities. He hasn't really paid a cost for them. Uh, he's violated or usurped the natural processes that make people super. And so these, you know, there's that element where the the supervillain has something like the gifts of the superheroes, but it's ill-gotten. But there's also like 119, I think I said 19 in the recap episode, there are 119 paranorms in this universe that the government knows of. So let's say at the end of the first run, the Furies defeat Corgo here. But now we need to bring in like a new paranorm character to freshen the cast up in the next run. What kind of power do you give them and what kind of villain do you create given the template I've just laid out? Or you can tweak the template to to fit your needs here. Sandor Sandor and Benedict Benedict both have a kind of like mental superpower, right? This does not seem to be a world where we've got people with super strength or flight, right? We don't have, or like, you know, (laughs) laser eyes or x-ray vision. Like those don't seem to be things that uh, we have. Maybe x-ray vision might actually be a thing, I suppose, that that, that could function here. So actually, maybe we need to say x-ray vision, though. I don't really know what what use that would be in this world, right? But it's going to be some kind of of mental type of power. I suppose it could actually be something like a a telekinetic power that might actually be able to function in this world. But yeah, I don't think we're going to get a kind of like Superman or Spider-Man type of character here. So yeah, I would probably go next with some kind of telekinesis, I think, because, and in fact, I might even give Lynx Lynx a kind of telekinesis here in this story, if we're going to have everybody have a kind of superpower, because then that would make, uh, that would aid him in actually being the executioner 
uh, you know, if he can manipulate weapons with his mind or something like that. That's a great idea. Is is giving Lynx Lynx kind of a, more of a clear power than a sort of Nick Fury type of power? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that would be a great idea. I just think you know you could you could kill a lot of pages with a new uh, like kind of intercut origin story of some you know teen on some backwater planet who who whose powers are just you know undiscovered or blooming for the first time uh, in an X-Men sort of way and then you know have them intersect with the Fury team and then they go get the coffee for the rest of the run or something like that <laughs> because say you know Sandor Sandor's powers don't really do anything in this story either as I pointed out in the recap so you need a reason for them to be there but you don't need their power to be you know specially designed to defeat the villain though that's a great way to do a coming of age story too is to have you know the new character who you introduce who's just the intern what they bring to the table is at the end of the story is that like they are specially equipped to defeat a villain well if we're going to have a a sort of planet of the week kind of flavor to this or at least every few issues you know have us visiting a new planet and wanting to know the world a little bit right that then sandor sandor actually i think becomes really important because he is this walking encyclopedia of every place in the galaxy essentially or at least you know in the the human civilization here so he can be a character who is doing that world building for us in scene. Some of that might be a type of voiceover uh, type of, of narration on the page, but some of it could actually be direct speech, right? Engagement with these other characters talking about you know the, the history and the, the geography, the cultures of this particular place that they're going, right? So I actually think in this case, you know, envisioning the story being told this way, I think Sandor Sandor actually becomes much more functional, much more important, uh, much, you know, giving a, becoming much more useful to the, the way that you could tell this story. I think long term, you absolutely have to have Sandor Sandor kind of running watchtower or whatever's going right, on, exactly. which, which means that you need links links to kind of be more of a of a body uh, than than an organizer. So, yeah, there's there would have to be a lot of character growth and trade offs to kind of make this work as a long running panel. Who do you think is villain number two? What kind of what kind of violations has a person created or gone through in order to have some ill-gotten power that these guys need to to take down next. Well, look, I want to know more about space pirates. I mean, that's like number yep, one that's, here. That's where I'd go to. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, just especially just if we're thinking about X-Men, I, I want to see space pirates actually as being a Really just meaning people existing outside of the confines of this state, people who have left the territory, they've just opted out. And so they want to go live on their own. And hey, maybe this is a place that people with these uh, paranormal abilities often go. Uh, that there's a price here that, that, in fact, maybe there are a lot of different types of powers out here that manifest or things happen to people as they're getting these powers, they're manifesting, uh, you know, if we're thinking X-Men, then like in puberty or something like that, right? And uh, actually get kicked out of their families or uh, are deemed dangerous and actually have to flee from the government. They have to run from the government. And so they end up with the pirates and maybe the pirates turn out actually to be a place where, you know, mutants, let's just call them mutants, (laughs) have made a home. Right, uh, where they're not threatened by the government, or where the government isn't seeking to control them, or hey, turn them into hitmen. Right, right? like so. This is a place that they can go in and try to escape from. That is a variable I would love to see in the story. 
Right. And and if you want to add that kind of sense of ill-gotten gains, you could have a, a ship captain who merges his consciousness with the ship or something like oh, that. Yeah, just yeah. To, you know, just to create that kind of uh, villainous identity. But I think a lot could be done with this template as a series. And uh, I don't know if anybody wants to uh, hire uh, an artist who's talented at drawing comics and buy the rights for us and pay us to write it. Uh, I could do that for a few years. That would be <laughs> Good life. <laughs> I would love to do that. I mean, this this does sound like actually a real, real fun deal. So I hope someone will hope someone will do that. We, you know, we you don't have to involve us, but I would just love love to be able to pick up exactly this. This would just be so amazing. Yeah. Well, now that we're uh, you know begging for somebody to uh, you know keep us in in comfort <laughs> by <laughs> making us write comic books <laughs> and and planning out a whole series here, I think that's going to do it for our discussion of the Furies here. Thank you so much for listening once again. I'm Brandon Buddha and I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com and hey maybe someday that'll include writing comic books that actually would be a real dream of mine while you are there please head on over to the clay temple forums you can also drop by our subreddit let us know what you thought of this story and especially if you've got other ideas about how to uh, how to adapt this for uh, a comic book series we would love to hear your thoughts we'd love to have that conversation with you yeah we certainly would and we said it in the end of the last episode we're going to say it again here We'd love for you to consider supporting our network to get access to dozens of bonus episodes, including uh, our, the, one of our most recent ones, T.E.D. Klein's Nadelman's God, which was great. So please just go to Patreon, check out what we've got. If, you've like, if you like those bonus episodes, consider supporting us at a level that you feel comfortable with. And if you can't do that, please consider reviewing us on uh, the major apps where you stream our content to help us get the word out. It helps us so much. So once again, thank you for listening. We're so grateful for your continued support. And if you're not supporting us, uh, please consider doing so either by uh, going to patreon.com and checking us out or making sure you're reviewing our podcast if you haven't done it already. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of your support, the review writing, the financial support on Patreon. All of that means so much to us. So thank you so much for doing that. Next time, we're going to be back with the first of three episodes that we're going to do on a Jeff Vandermeer novella. I am really excited for this. It is The Transformation of Martin Lake. Uh, you can find this in the Ambergris collection, City of Saints and Mad Men. Uh, it has taken us way too long to get to a Jeff Andermere story on this podcast. And I'm so excited, so, so excited to get to do this. But until then, until next time, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.